Let me invite you to take your Bibles and join us in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah. We'll be focusing our attention this morning on the first chapter. We shall not read it verbatim in a moment. We shall instead refer back to it throughout the morning. It's my ambition today to begin a a new series of studies together with you through the book of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah is the second longest book in the Bible, Psalms being the longest, of course, 150 chapters of Psalms, 66 chapters of Isaiah. Isaiah holds another distinction in that it is the most quoted book of the Old Testament in the New Testament, which means if you don't know Isaiah, then you're not like the people who wrote the New Testament because they knew Isaiah. In fact, the name Isaiah, the name Isaiah, there are so many quotes of Isaiah in the New Testament, the very name Isaiah occurs 20 times in the New Testament, 20 times. But I would suggest to you it's one of the most ignored books among contemporary Christians because... It doesn't fit the type of literature that we enjoy reading. Most of us enjoy narratives, stories. We like to read from, you know, birth to death kind of stories about people's lives. That's not what Isaiah does. In fact, Isaiah was a prophet over a 40-year period, and these are excerpts, the book of Isaiah, over 66 chapters, excerpts of his messages to the kings and to the people of Judah in the Old Testament over a 40-year period. So year one, year five, year 10, year 12, year 13, year 17. And so all of that's collected in uh, contemporary literature. We have a word that's often used for that kind of literature. It's called an anthology. Most Bible interpreters like that term for describing the book of Isaiah. So it's a kind of a collection of experiences, collection of teachings. Uh, It doesn't start in the beginning. Instead, it moves around a little bit, and it kind of leaves us confused because we don't know sort of who's on first. But uh, my job over the next seven Sundays, I trust, will be to help us hopscotch through the book of Isaiah, and I hope to not belabor the point, but to keep your eye on the timeline to know what's actually going on. Now, a little history here for those who aren't here today and maybe will show up next week or the week after. I hope not to repeat this, but I, I know that if you're not here today, and by the way, you don't know that you're missing this because you're not watching perhaps, but if you're not here today, not paying attention, you'll miss out on this. Let me tell you that Isaiah was a prophet of what's called the 8th century B.C., and essentially the last half of the 8th century B.C., meaning that he is a prophet during the 700s and essentially between 750 and 700. So 750 years before Christ, Isaiah is the prophet. Now, he's not the only prophet. There are other prophets, Hosea, for instance, being perhaps among the most prominent that also prophesied during this time. But Isaiah is 
the, if you will, the most uh, significant because his book is 66 chapters. That's a lot of ink, a lot going on here. And because of the weight that the New Testament gives to Isaiah, we should understand it. So we shall do that. Let me help you with a bit of the narrative. There are two regions of Israel. There's the northern and there's the southern kingdom, and they are ruled by different kings. Universally in the north, Israel, the kings are bad. The kings do not follow the way of God. They are not devout, Uh, and they are universally so. You would look high and low for good qualities, devoted qualities of the kings in the north. As a result, God brings them under judgment, and his primary means of judgment in the 8th century was the ancient nation of Assyria. Not Syria, but Assyria, the ancient nation of Assyria, led by uh, the the capital of Assyria was Nineveh. And uh, universally, the, the Jewish people didn't like the Assyrians. Consider the testimony of the prophet Jonah. They don't like the folks from Nineveh at all. They don't like the Assyrians. They are bad people. But they command a wide swath of the ancient world. And Assyria has one thing in mind, and that is to gobble up weak countries. And they do it. And they come against the northern kingdom, and eventually they take them captive. And uh, there is extra biblical history as well as biblical history to support uh, all of those uh, wars and battles and so forth. And so we know uh, pretty closely exactly what happened in the north. As a result of their success in the north, they continued to march south. And eventually they came to the border, the northern border of Judah. Now Judah is led by some bad kings, the kings that uh, begin, that, that Isaiah begins to talk to. Uh, the, the most prominent of those would be Ahaz. Ahaz, uh, not a good man. He's the leader of the south, the leader of the nation of Judah. And Isaiah warns and warns and warns Ahaz. Then uh, Ahaz is, uh, t- is taken off the scene, and he is replaced by Hezekiah. Now, many of you know that Hezekiah uh, is a good king. Hezekiah brings reforms in Judah. Hezekiah is a man who has Isaiah in his ear, and he pays attention to Isaiah somewhat. Like many kings, uh, some days they think their advisors are smart, and some days they think their advisors are not so smart. And in this case, the advisor of Hezekiah is Isaiah, the man of God. It's not a good thing to reject the man of God. But nonetheless, Hezekiah hears Isaiah on many occasions, and and, uh, there there is evidence of that as we shall read throughout the book. So those are the sort of the major characters. Assyria is the enemy that God intends to use to bring judgment against Judah. Uh, Actually, he doesn't fully bring that judgment. That is reserved for another nation, Babylon. But Assyria is the threat. Ahaz is the first king, Hezekiah is the second king, and Isaiah is the prophet. So those are the major 
personalities you'll want to keep your eye on as you reflect on these warnings in the book of Isaiah. So I want you to note from the outset, we're going to read a few verses. We're going to stop and think about that and think about the implications of that for today. Now, there is one more thing that needs to be said, and I hesitate to go here, but I'm going here anyway. There are people that want to tell you that Israel, ancient Israel, is to the United States a, a bold line. That the Israel, the ancient Israel is God's people and the, the country of the United States is God's people. I want you to know that is a violation of the way the Scripture works. To draw a bold line and say every promise God gave to Israel is a promise that God gave to the United States is wrong. And anybody who says that is wrong. So what we're going to read here are warnings that God makes to his people 750 years before the time of Christ. He warns them and warns them and warns them and warns them. And then eventually he's going to follow through on his warning. He's going to bring judgment. And many people want to take those warnings and apply them to the United States. Now, I will tell you, God can do whatever he wants. God may have the same level of uh, warning in mind for the United States. He may have the same level of disregard or if you will judgment on the united states he may he may let me emphasize he may in fact be planning to do just that but one thing is for certain the people he is talking to in the old testament are his people most of whom have rebelled against him so the bold line should not be drawn between ancient israel and the united states the majority of whom are not the people of God and never have been. The bold line should be drawn from ancient Israel and the church. The church, who every last one of them professed to be the people of God. So the warnings that we read in the book of Isaiah are designed to be applied to the church. It is the church that needs to hear this. I've said to you before, I, I am a patriot. I love the United States. We, as a kid, I lived on an army post for two years. I, I would have gone in the army, the Air Force, the Navy, the Marine Corps. I would, have, I would have done it all had not God intervened in my life. I am a patriot. I love the United States. And I have great concern about the future of the history of this country or the future of this country. I, I absolutely do. There's no doubt about it. But I do not share the view that the United States is the modern manifestation of ancient Israel. So if that bugs you, let's talk about it. You can buy lunch or I'll buy lunch. I don't care. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about why and why not. But one thing is sure, surely certain that when God makes promises to his people in the Old Testament, his people in the New Testament need to think rightly about it. How do I know that? Because Isaiah is quoted again and again and again by the New Testament writers as if the promises of Isaiah apply to the New Testament church. 
Remember, the Apostle Paul is preaching throughout the Mediterranean world. And by the way, Paul quotes Isaiah more than any other New Testament writer. Paul is quoting, he's, he's moving a, a, across the Mediterranean world. He is not preaching primarily to Jews, though he is in the beginning. He himself a Jew, right? A trained Jew, a trained lawyer type Jew. He has a, a, a brilliant A times B equals C kind of mind. He, he thinks legally about the, the will of God and the way of God. He, he has a brilliant mind, and he's speaking initially to Jews, but then he, he moves immediately to the Mediterranean world. And I would ask you, what does a Greek person take away from Paul's writings when he quotes Isaiah, if in fact Isaiah is all about Judaism? A Greek person has, there's no room for him in that conversation. We would say the same thing today. If, if Isaiah is all about the United States, then, then what does the person from South America benefit from reading Isaiah? What does the person from Africa benefit from reading Isaiah? I will tell you, it's, it's, it's not possible to find a benefit if, in fact, that premise is true. It's not true. But it is true that the people of God exist on every continent in the world today. It is true that, that there are millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of Christians on these continents, and they care deeply about the Word of God and the way of God, and they want to hear from God, and they want to hear from the book of Isaiah. Do not draw a bold line between Isaiah and the United States. Do not do that. So what do we see in Isaiah? Well, we begin where Isaiah begins. So let's read a few verses. Verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of, and these are the last four kings of the southern kingdom uh, during the time of Isaiah's life. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. And from the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. I'll stop there. We'll come back to this. I hope you'll keep your Bibles handy as we continue to think about Isaiah. You know, we would prefer that Isaiah begin his uh, rebuke of Israel with 
if you will, some similarity to the way the Apostle Paul writes letters in the New Testament. For instance, the Apostle Paul, uh, as he writes letters, he usually begins by saying, uh, I, I remember you fondly, and I thank you for your investment in me and, you know, all the wonderful things you've done to me, and you remember the good times we've had and so forth and so on, and I'm paraphrasing to make the point. The Apostle Paul always, except in one occasion in his letters, begins with a, if you will, a salutation of, of happy memories. And then you read Isaiah, and, I mean, he just takes a machete from the jump and he hacks them hacks them up I want you to note just uh, three things in this chapter one we won't deviate from chapter one today but I want you to note first of all he announces their sin he announces their sin I want you to note verse two hear O heavens and give ear O earth he wants to announce their sin in front of every listening and seeing ear and eye. He, he, I want the heavens to witness. I want the earth to witness. I call the witness of heaven and earth against you. I have reared and brought you up, but you have rebelled against me. He announces their sin. He tells them from the outset, you are sinners. This is a message that we must not ignore as Christian people today. It is very possible to get in the rhythm, and we shall see this momentarily in Isaiah chapter 1, but it's very possible to get in the rhythm of worship, to get in the rhythm of church, to use the language that we would use today, to get in the rhythm of prayer, get in the rhythm of maybe reading the Bible even, maybe, maybe even talking religious talk with people, to get in the, the, the rhythm of these things and still ignore our sin. To, to act as if our sin is of no consequence to God. We don't perceive ourselves. Our self-talk does not identify ourselves as rebellion, people in rebellion. We're not rebels against God. We're, we're not deviants. We're not like those people or those people or those people, whoever those people are. You'll note that Isaiah is writing to the people of God. And I would say again that the application we should continue to focus upon in our own lives is he is not speaking to people who have no pretense about God. He is speaking to people who claim a relationship with God. Now, in the New Testament, those people are called the church. He is speaking some 750 years before Christ to people of God. So the application must be likewise made to the people of God. So I would ask you to consider today your own relationship to God and your own fraternity or sorority with sin. Is sin present in your life? Are you ignoring sin? Are you just kicking the can down the road? Are you pretending it doesn't matter? Are you suggesting that these things are inconsequential? Have you glossed over and smoothed over? Have you called sin righteousness? Or have you called sin just some other therapeutic word? It's just a human weakness. It's just a, a, a bad habit. You, you can couch it any way you want. You can put lipstick on it any way you want. But in the end, it is sin. We must contend with that. Notice in verse 4, he says, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. 
What we see in the Scripture is that sin is heavy. I will tell you how you know you're ignoring sin. There is a weight. There is a gravity. There, there, there is, if you will, a burden in your life because you are not confessing sin. You're not dealing with sin. It manifests itself, this burden, it manifests itself in all kinds of irritability or in unkindness, harsh words or impatience. You turned out to be a rotten person or more rotten than you used to be. Perhaps you, like me, can remember the day you were converted. It's not necessary that you remember that day. It's not necessary that you remember those high mountains, if you will, of experience with God in the past. But if you do, and I suspect most do, some moment at least, you hearken back to that day or those few days or those weeks in your life, and you remember that there was a season of renewal, a season of freshness, a season of life, a season of confession. And what season are you in now as compared to that? Where is the joy of your salvation? Where is your understanding of the mercy of God, the goodness of God, the kindness of God, the faithfulness of God? Where is your wonder at that, that God would give grace to you, a sinner? But instead, because you have forgotten that, because you have covered over your sin, because you've ignored your sin, because you've not confessed your sin, both to God and to others, you've, you've turned into a different person. The Bible says something about that. In Psalm 38, David said this. Just a few verses of Psalm 38 will remind you of your own sin, I trust. This is what David said in Psalm 38, verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin, for my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. Yes, that's the problem, isn't it? Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. Jesus invites us who are heavy laden to come to him, to cast our burdens upon him. The burden of sin is the primary burden of all of our lives. You'll notice in verse 3, the ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. Do you know God? I mean, even animals know their master. Do you know yours? Do you come to God with the same affection as an animal comes to his master? Israel does not know. My people do not understand. You don't know the hand that feeds you. You don't know the hand that shepherds you. You don't know the hand that protects you. You don't know the hand that leads you. You don't know the hand that goes before you to put an end to enemies before you ever see them. Before you even know they're there, they're gone. Why? Because the hand of the Lord, your master, has seen to it. Do you know? Are you walking 
in fellowship with this one. So he rebukes Judah and says, you are sinners. He continues, and he condemns their sin. Notice verse 5. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's no soundness in it. Bruises, sores, raw wounds. They're not pressed up. You're bleeding all over the place, and no one's here to bind your wounds. There's no EMT on the scene because you're looking to the wrong medicine. Verse 7, your country lies desolate, your cities burned In your very presence, foreigners devour. It is desolate, overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard. (laughs) The vineyard's gone, and all that's left is the caretaker's shack. I want to suggest to you that we have sinned against the Holy One. Notice in verse 4, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. You'll note on the front of your bulletin that's actually the name I've given to the theme of this series. Interesting that terminology, the Holy One of Israel. Holiness is a, a strange term for Americans, maybe Westerners of all kind, because we don't normally think in terms of of true royalty. We don't normally think in terms of uh, true deity. The word holy uh, means set apart. It is reserved for God in the scriptures. God alone is holy. Man is not good. God alone is good. So holiness is the, the terminology the Bible uses for God in every way. But this phrase, the Holy One of Israel, is a very unique phrase. Interesting fact here. This will, uh, I hope, encourage you as you read Isaiah again and again. That phrase, Holy One of Israel, is used 27 times in the Old Testament. 25 of the 27 are in Isaiah. It is a favorite term of Isaiah, the Holy One of Israel. He says from the jump here in verse 4, all sinful nature, people laden with iniquity, you have forsaken the Lord, you have despised the Holy One of Israel. I would suggest that if we interviewed Christians today all across America and asked them, do you think it's true, is it a fair criticism of you that you despise the Holy One of Israel, we'd get a mixed bag of answers, but almost universally, no one would sign up. No one would say, yes, I despise God. And yet, he uses that very terminology as he rebukes his people in the Old Testament. You have despised the Holy One of God. You have forgotten God. You have ignored God. You have rejected God. You have despised God. Make no mistake about it, God is centered on himself. God is focused upon himself, and God would have his people likewise to do the same, to be the same. This is the nature of being God. When you're the God of gods, you answer to no one. When you're the God of gods, you bow to no one. When you're the God of gods, you don't split time with other people, the people of your own creation who owe their very lives to you. When you're the God of gods, you deserve the affections of your people. You deserve the attention of your people. You deserve the admiration of your people. You deserve the worship of your people. The Holy One of Israel. 
Consider chapter 48 in Isaiah, just a couple of verses here. Verse 9. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. The point that he makes there in chapter 48 is, I will not share my glory with you. I will not give to you equal time. I will not share time with you. I am the Holy One of Israel. In the company of God, we are to bow. In the company of God, we are to acknowledge his priority. He is the God of gods. He is the Holy One of Israel. We shall see this. As you would expect, we will consider Isaiah's vision in chapter 6 next week. Isaiah, in the throne room of God, recognizes the holiness of God. We will see this again and again throughout Isaiah. Our problem is we have brought God down to our level. And what happens when that occurs? We minimize God, maximize ourselves, and our lives go to pot. And if you will, the wake that follows behind us is unrighteousness. It's selfishness. It's self-pity. It's self-aggrandizement. It's all about me. It's not about God. Instead, consider the witness of Christ in the New Testament. Christ came as one who, though he was equal with God, humbled himself and took upon himself the form of a servant. A servant. And he came and he served mankind. He served God by serving mankind. He denied himself. He turned the other cheek. He went the extra mile. He received the stripes of condemnation. He ultimately was crucified. Why? Because this was the calling of God upon his life, to make much of God, to make much of the Father. I would ask you, if that's the witness of our Savior, how much is it less the witness of our own lives? What, what does God really want from us? In the Old Testament, God wanted faithfulness. As we shall read in the book of Isaiah, after the Assyrians came against the northern kingdom and captured them, they just kept marching. And they came to the northern border of Judah, and they basically said, it's time for you to cave in. You should surrender. What, what we've done to the north, we're going to do to you. And Hezekiah is ultimately going to be the king at that time, and Hezekiah is going to have a bit of a waffling moment, but eventually he's going to come around to trusting God, and God's going to protect him. God's going to protect him. Why? Because when God brought the affliction, when God brought the sadness, when God brought the threat of a foreign country who is going to come in and destroy them. Hezekiah looked to God. I would ask you today to consider what is the purpose of God's work in your life today and my life today. God has condemned our sin even as he has always condemned our sin and we must not ignore his voice. Much has been made about the pandemic and I have made a little of it in my own life here uh, before you Sunday after Sunday over the last 10 months. I don't profess to be a prophet. I don't profess to know all that God is doing. I don't uh, masquerade as anybody with that kind of uh, insight. 
But I will tell you, friend, that among the things God is clearly doing is he's poking a finger in the eye of the church because this is what God does. God says it's time for you to wake up. You claim to be my people. Why aren't you living like it? You claim to be my people. Why aren't you serving like it? You claim to be my people. Why aren't you treating me like I deserve to be treated? Why aren't you regarding me as holy and righteous? Why am I not treated as the holy one of Israel, the holy one of your life? Why have you turned away? Why have you rebelled? Perhaps God would ask you today, why have you despised me? I don't know the answer to that for you, but I will tell you that God is working. As we just read in Isaiah 48, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it, how should my name be profaned? You know, at some point God is sick and tired of people treating him with disregard. At some point, God has a line, God has a limit, God has an edge. And when we get to that edge and cross over it, God says, that is it. I don't know if we're there. I don't know enough about that. You, neither does anybody else. Stop buying their books. But I will tell you this, friend. You should and I should be taking personal inventory of our lives. Is the focus, is the hope, is the direction, is the command of our lives resident in the heart of God, or is it resident in the things of this world? It is not the nation of man that should capture our affections. It is the nation of God. And then he concludes in chapter 1, and he calls them to repentance. So he's announced their sin, he's condemned their sin, and now he calls them to repentance. Some of the most beautiful words in all the Bible, in my judgment, Notice how he phrases it in verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your skins are like skins, sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the refrain of Scripture again and again and again. God announces judgment, and then he holds out an escape. And that escape always is couched in terms of returning. Returning. Come home. Stop playing the field. Stop running off. Stop doing what you're doing or acting like you're acting, talking like you're talking, living like you're living. Stop pursuing those other idols, those other gods, those other objectives, those other world systems. Stop pursuing those things. Come home to the one who is faithful and true, or to use the language of Isaiah 1, to the Holy One of Israel, to your God, the God of gods. Come home. Come, he says in verse 18. Let us reason together. Now, why would God reason with me? Why would God call me to a conversation? Why would God care to have a conversation with me? Why would God invite me into his company, into his presence? And the answer must be not because I have done anything 
fortuitous, not because I've done anything advantageous, not because I offer to God anything. I bring nothing to God. I add to God nothing, neither do you. Why would God invite us into his company? And the answer must be because he desires our company. Lean into that this morning. God desires us to come home. It's time for us to stop monkeying around with God, to stop acting as if God does not care and does not deserve our response. Come, let us reason together. Though your your sins be as scarlet, yet they shall be as wool. Think of that. No matter what you've done, where you've done it, how long you've done it, with whom you've done it, how often you've done it, no matter, no matter, no matter. Doesn't matter how dark ugly, evil, wrong, unfaithful your sins have been. What matters is that you run to God because he's the only one who can turn scarlet into wool. He's the only one that can provide redemption, provide salvation, provide mercy, provide forgiveness. He's the only one that can restore you. I will tell you, if you keep stiff-arming God, if we keep stiff-arming God, we will sow the wind and we will reap the whirlwind. You want to apply that to the nation? Fine. But as for me and mine, we need to look no further than our own home. I don't believe for a minute that God is going to continue to allow his church to continue to spiral away from him. The language of verse 21 should startle you. How the faithful city has become, and in the interest of the children here, I will not read that word. You see, when we are unfaithful to God, we are an adulteress, adulterer. We're unfaithful to the one to whom we pledged our lives. We're unfaithful to the one who is faithful. We're unfaithful to the one who is good. We're unfaithful to the one who is holy. We're unfaithful. We're unfaithful. And the city has manifested that unfaithfulness again and again and again. Well, the city of God on this side of the cross is the church. So I've come this morning to invite you, O church, to consider your faithfulness and where you found yourself to be unfaithful, where the Holy Spirit is right this very moment pointing a finger at you. Then I beg of you to repent. And to return to the one who desires to reason with you and to give you forgiveness. How can we expect God to bless us when we are so unfaithful? May God give us grace to return to him, the Holy One of Israel. He and he alone is our God. Let us pray.
Father, how we love you, thank you, worship you. We are guilty of sin. Lord, each, each one here is a sinner. We know that we are sinners, and yet, Lord, we have often ignored our sin, pretended it doesn't matter, and we've just gone along our merry way. I pray that this morning, Lord, we will read Isaiah 1, and we will recognize that you take it seriously. And these verses that we have read, Father, they rebuke us, they challenge us, and then, Lord, they comfort us because we know that the only way to deal with them is not to continue to pretend they don't exist, but rather to confess them and to be forgiven. Come, let us reason together with our God. Lord, what a sweet and kind and merciful invitation. Let us not miss it this morning for our own lives. Give us grace, much grace, and may the church of God, the church of Jesus Christ, the church that follows and names your name, I pray, Father, that we would repent and come home. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.